0: Good afternoon. We're about to get started. Um, My name is Eric Brown. I work here at Hudson Institute, and I'm honored to convene this panel, titled Justice for the Yazidis, on the third anniversary of the Yazidi, start of the Yazidi genocide. Um, It was, in fact, three years ago today, on the 3rd of August, 2014, that Islamic State launched a premeditated attack on the Yazidis of Shingal or Sinjar in Iraq's Nineveh province. And that attack included murder, rape, abductions, among many other acts of violence. Over 3,000 Yazidis were massacred. Nearly 7,000 were captured or enslaved. Over 1,000 children were captured and trained, to, trained up as child soldiers while thousands of women and girls were raped and sold into sexual slavery. At least 3,000, possibly many more, remain imprisoned by Islamic State today and their remaining strongholds in Iraq and in Syria. In addition to the Yazidis, Islamic State also targeted Christians and other religious minorities, murdering thousands and displacing as many as 700,000 from Nineveh. We have not yet begun to come up with a comprehensive international response to restore these people to their homes. These atrocities against Yazidis and Christians and other minorities have been formally recognized as a genocide by both the Obama and the Trump administrations. Yet the world's understanding of the enormity of these atrocities is still evolving. And the possibility for political backsliding is still quite great. Graves are still being discovered as ISIS is pushed out of Nineveh today. We've reached, I think, max capacity in our conference room here at Hudson Institute. And looking at all of you, it is a testament, I think, to the seriousness with which this city and so many here in the United States takes all of these issues. Here, I would be remiss not to acknowledge the leadership of my colleague Nina Shea and the work of Hudson Center for Religious Freedom for working for uh, recognition of, of the crimes of genocide against many of Iraq's minorities and justice. We will need a broad coalition to maintain political support for efforts by the U.S. and other nations of goodwill to aid the government in Iraq and the regional government in Kurdistan and most of all the many peoples of Nineveh to break the cycle that led to Islamic State's rise in the first place. The rise of Islamic State was not and should not have been wholly unforeseen. Attentive analysts saw in the course of the war to crush al-Qaeda in Iraq in the mid-2000s that its jihadist ideology and the movement itself was mutating, that it had embraced the caliphate not only as its desired political form, but that its rhetoric against minorities like the Yazidis, Christians, Shia Muslims, and others was growing genocidal more and more so by the day, and that they were intent on acting on this. As far back as 2009, after the first caliphate movement was defeated in Iraq, Kurdish and Iraqi officials were warning us that the evil forces were reconstituting themselves in Western Iraq. It was the descent into chaos and the civil war in Syria that gave those evil forces the opportunity to regroup and to burst out onto the scene once again. Now in Iraq, Islamic State is once again losing control of territory, but the political conditions, including the failures of local governance and security in Nineveh and elsewhere to prevent mass atrocities, have not been addressed. The political reconstruction of Iraq and Kurdistan depends on the ability of local governments to ensure security and justice and fair treatment for all the peoples of Nineveh, Yazidis included. Without addressing this situation, we are at risk. I would say it is likely that we are resetting the conditions for ISIS's return. Moreover, even if Islamic State has lost territory in Iraq, it is an ideological movement. It has become more internationalized and, I would say, arguably more powerful than ever, despite its military defeats in Iraq. Its capacity to survive as a terrorist movement depends on its ability to recruit not just resources, but also individuals. In this, we should not assume that people elsewhere are aware of the enormity of the caliphate's crimes. For some, the caliphate movement is still glamorous, a possibility for some sort of honor uh, and a life of adventure. The ideological and political struggle against Islamic State requires bringing its fighters to justice, and that is holding them to account for their crimes of genocide as individuals in a court of law. To assess current efforts and how adherents of the Islamic State movement can, in fact, be brought to justice for their crimes of genocide, how the safety of vulnerable minority communities can be ensured as Iraq starts to rebuild once again, And also to talk about the unique stabilization of needs of Nineveh, where most of these minorities live. We've assembled, I think, a very strong panel of people who have been engaged as practitioners, both in the field and here in Washington. We are joined by Pari Ibrahim, the executive director of the Free Yazidi Foundation. Um, has been uh, very active on the ground as well in in Iraq as well as in Europe and here in the United States and bringing attention um, to uh, uh, the needs of the Yazidi community and the importance of bringing ISIS uh, uh, conspirators to justice. We also have Naomi Koehler, who is the deputy director of the Center for the Prevention of Genocide at the U.S. Holocaust Museum, uh, also a well-known advocate uh, here in Washington. I'm deeply sorry to report that our formal program uh, this morning is going to be a bit abbreviated. We had originally had Nathaniel Hurd, who's a policy advisor at the Commission on Security and Cooperation in Europe, otherwise known as the Helsinki Commission, He was scheduled to join us, but uh, he called this morning and, with deep regret, is unable to join us because uh, an important piece of legislation that he was working on and that he was planning on speaking to all of us today about H.R. 390 is coming down to the wire. And he, unfortunately, is shackled to his desk, pushing a year's worth of work through we hope very much in the future that Nathaniel and perhaps some of his colleagues will be able to join us um, to a- apprise us of, of, of how that turned out and of the importance of that legislation. Um, uh, we, we do hope um, uh, that he will come in the future. I'm looking around the room as well and seeing an enormous amount of expertise um, and knowledge on all of these issues. So despite the fact that our program will be, our formal program will be a bit abbreviated, we will have some time for Q&A and open discussion uh, after our speakers uh, have their time. Uh, with that, um, I'd like to go to Ms. Ibrahim
1: Pari. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you, Eric. Uh, I think you explained a lot of what has happened to the Yazidis. Um, just to give a short, short background, Um, I won't talk a lot about what the Free Yazidi Foundation is doing because the Free Yazidi Foundation was established because the international community did not act when they should have been acting and helping the Yazidi population when there was a genocide ongoing and until now is going. Um, On the 3rd of August, ISIS entered the area of Sinjar which is inhabited by uh, mostly Yazidi population. Uh, the Yazidis were, uh, the men were killed because of their religion, um, the women and girls were taken, eventually sold as sex slaves on markets in uh, uh, Syria, in Raqqa, and in uh, Mosul in Iraq. Um, there were also young boys uh, taken to eventually be brainwashed to commit suicide or become ISIS uh, child soldiers. So. As you can see, a lot of trauma within the Yazidi community. Those who eventually uh, did make it to uh, survive uh, this genocide are living now in Kurdistan uh, <coughs> as uh, IDPs in the camps. Uh, the need is enormous uh, psychological treatment, but also uh, a way to find um, possibility to come back into the community, to to try to find a job and uh, live life again as normal human beings. I think that's uh, the small thing that I wanted to say. Uh.
2: Um, thank you to the Hudson Institute for, for hosting this conversation today. I think it's unfortunate that we have to be here, because I think what this conversation means is that the commitments that the international community made over 70 years ago to ensure that there was never again going to be genocide, um, it means that they've unfortunately proven to be both harder to fulfill um, and also an ongoing area where we need to be investing more of our resources and attention. I wanted to talk a little bit today because we're here marking the third anniversary. And as Pari Pari mentioned, the effect and the impact that this set of atrocities had on communities on the ground is just so incredibly um, extreme. When I traveled for the first time to Iraq, I met with uh, Christians who had been given, you know, barely even, you know, an hour, two hours notice that they would have to flee for their lives um, from Karakosh and elsewhere. Individuals had been displaced over three times. People who had been living in Mosul, one man in particular, Uh, told me about his story about how when the Islamic State took Mosul he thought perhaps I can stay but he was scared so he moved his family from Mosul to nearby Karakosh a large Christian community and he lived for almost a month with the Islamic State controlling um, Mosul and during that time Uh, there came a point in which there was a decree issued. And he essentially had no choice other than to flee Mosul. Um, The only choice that was given was essentially to uh, pay a tax, which it was unclear whether or not, even if he was to pay, whether or not that would be sufficient for the Islamic State, uh, convert, or essentially be killed. And he fled first to Karkosh. And then, of course, uh, as many of you know, after Sinjar was attacked, ISIS then moved from Sinjar to parts of Nineveh Plain displacing all the people who had fled and who were already living in areas in Nineveh Plain, including uh, Christian communities like Karakosh, and had to flee yet again and sought safety in um, the Kurdistan region. And those communities, the Yazidi communities, the Shabak communities, Sabian Mendeans, very, very small community of which there were a few families living in Nineveh, Nineveh Plains. Have all had to flee and are still, in large part, living displaced. We're talking over seven hundred thousand people. We're talking the entire population of Nineveh, who constituted religious minorities. That was an ethnic cleansing on a scale that we just have not seen, and that we should not have seen in the last um, in the last few decades after these commitments to to genocide. So. F- to genocide prevention. So for me, I feel that this conversation has to be a forward-looking conversation. It has to be one about, how do we ensure that these communities are going to be protected going forward? How do we ensure that stability and security in Nineveh, this very unique province, which is home to the vast majority of Iraq's religious minorities, how do we ensure that that is stable and that is safe so that these communities can return home, so that that area can remain diverse? To do that, you have to ensure that the plight of religious minorities is part of the conversation. It's part of the conversation in Baghdad, part of the conversation in Erbil, and part of the conversation here in Washington as as central to creating a strategy for not just addressing the military threat by ISIS, but by ensuring that we actually have got a coherent, holistic strategy for what the future of Iraq and the future of the region will look like. What worries me is that in the last three years, and for two years of that, I've been working and trying to advance the recommendations that we have made in a couple of reports looking at the plight of religious minorities. What really worries me is that when I have discussions with the Department of State, when I have discussions with the, the past administration um, and hopefully future administration, when I have discussions with the people who are leading the military effort, discussion about religious minorities is a an afterthought. Discussion about the plight of communities living in Nineveh is an afterthought for them. Um, I think that that is tragic, because unfortunately we're doing something very similar that we did uh, seven years ago during the Holocaust, when the focus is on how to fight and defeat a threat militarily without recognizing the much more complicated um environment in which this threat emerged from and unless we address those underlying conditions that led to the rise of the islamic state unless we address the sectarian tensions unless we address the disenfranchisement and marginalization of the sunni community unless we address the concerns that the neighbors had who were living alongside the Yazidi community the christian community unless we address the political dispute in nineveh between erbil and baghdad And unless we actually ensure that there is finally justice and accountability for the commission of atrocity crimes, not just by ISIS, but by others as well, I'm concerned we're going to be back here in 10 years. But in order to do that, we have to find a way to ensure that the individuals here in the United States that are making policy for for Iraq are talking about these types of issues. That this is not perceived as being a boutique human rights issue. And I have immense respect for the people who have worked incredibly hard within the US government to try to ensure and work every day to elevate the plight of these particular communities. But until when we talk about Iraq, when until Congress, I think, puts a real emphasis on demanding greater accountability on what this administration is going to do to protect these communities going forward, I think we're going to be at a deficit. And if you don't mind, I'll maybe just outline a couple of reasons why I think we might be Please. at a deficit. Um, when we talk about religious minorities, and I think the unfortunate, uh, there are two, two consequences, I think, of unfortunate the way the media has been discussing this particular conflict. Um, one in particular is uh, just on a, on a very human and individual level, um, obviously the experiences of Yazidi women and the experiences of sexual slavery, of rape, are, are so hard to comprehend. They simply defy any sense of kind of common humanity. Um, in, in that particular case, I think it's been quite tragic to see that we continue to talk about the Yazidi genocide as being uh, simply about the, the exploitation of these women, when actually the commission of genocide was much broader than that. And I think that Hari has talked about what happened to the men, what happened to the boys, what happened to a whole host of individuals. Uh, we, Looking at the situation in regards to the commission of genocide against the Yazidis from a legal perspective, every single ground of genocide was met in that particular case. Um, all of the conditions were met from a from a legal perspective. But we're putting an onus now on women to be the face of this genocide. And these women, I think, unfortunately, at times are being exploited in the process of doing that. And I say that only because it is a shame that communities, be them Christians, Yazidis, Shabaks, and others have to be here in Washington, be in Paris, be in London, advocating for individuals and for governments to care about them. Uh, I think it's quite sim- it's sim- uh, symptomatic of a broader problem, which is our failure to really recognize how core and central the plight of these communities are to our own national security interests and to the national security interests of those communities. And I think we have a really real problem in terms of the exploitation of these particular individuals and communities. Um, I think a, a second problem in the way in which we've discussed the narrative is we talk about ISIS as though it emerged out of nothing. Uh, I think there's slightly more nuanced discussions when we talk about it being... Uh, the the child or the father of Al Qaeda Uh, ISIS is more than that and when we talk about religious minorities in Iraq we have to be talking about the conditions that allowed for the rise of this if you look at the history of Iraq it's a history in which you have a country that has experienced horrific atrocity crimes every single decade there is not a single person in Iraq that within their family I suspect cannot within five or six degrees of separation um, speak to a family member that was the victim of a brutal crime We have to understand that when we understand the history of the country today, when we think about what is needed going forward. But we also have to recognize that in addition to the atrocity crimes that have been committed, there has been decades of persecution. When people talk about uh, the Christian community in Iraq, and when we talk about the fact that over a decade ago, there were 1.5 million Christians living in Iraq, and today there are arguably fewer than 300,000. there's others that might be able to speak to those numbers more specifically. Bear in mind that the vast majority of those 300,000 have now had to flee their homes and are living in Kurdistan. That situation does not happen in a country where you have good governance, rule of law, respect for human rights, and a recognition of the importance of uh, religious identity and the protection of that particular identity. Those conditions don't happen when there's economic opportunity for communities as well. And that goes for many of the religious communities. ISIS emerged out of a number of different factors. Many of those factors and grievances still remain. So when we talk about the needs of communities going forward, one of the things that I find is very, very challenging and disheartening too is you'll hear a lot of people discuss, well, does genocide, when we invoke the language of genocide, does that mean we have to go put boots on the ground? Does that mean we have to go physically protect these particular communities? Does that mean we have to create safe havens? Policymakers ask those questions because that's what the communities themselves or their advocates here in Washington elsewhere ask for. You have to understand why they're asking for that to try to then understand what are the solutions and what's actually feasible. People are asking to be protected because they feel as though they've been living, not just for the last three years, in a situation of of instability, but that they they have been living for years, if not more than a decade, in a situation of chronic instability. So when we talk about trying to create a future Iraq where religious minorities can live, a future Iraq that is democratic, that is pluralistic, that allows for diversity we have to be thinking every single day about what we can do to create those conditions on the ground. And it's not an easy situation. I mentioned at the beginning, and in our reports we've tried to highlight this, these communities lived in an area that, where there has been ongoing political dispute over who has control of that particular area. It created and exacerbated the vulnerabilities that these communities face. That's not to say that there are not additional issues. There are not issues of ideology. There are not issues of governance that have nothing to do with the dispute. That does not mean that there's not differences in terms of conflict even within communities. Because of course, the situation is not so simple as we can say there are good guys, bad guys, one actor, two actors. It's a multiplicity of issues. But we have to be looking at the facts on the ground as they are to try to create a solution for them. Today, for communities going forward, the biggest need that they seek, is a desire to return home. Returning home is a complicated issue. It involves a recognition of the fact that these towns, when I have visited areas that were liberated around uh, Sinjar, have been completely destroyed. You drive through, and you see building after building that has been flattened. Um, There are certain institutions that are still standing. There are certain schools that can be created, hospitals that can be reopened. And there's an effort to try to do that. But you have to bear in mind that you have to be concerned about everywhere you step because you could step on some sort of an explosive device. You have to be aware that it is hard for people to return home and farm. The areas around Karakosh were thriving um, agricultural lands as elsewhere as well. Those areas have to be demined. They have to be rebuilt. They have to have an investment in strengthening the local infrastructure for people to go home. But as we know from many different conflict situations, people will go home even in the absence of that if they feel safe. They will go home and try to rebuild as soon as they can. What's unfortunate is for these communities, if we're speaking honestly, it is very difficult for many of them to go home. And it's difficult for them to go home because, unfortunately, these areas still to a degree remain militarized. And there is the potential for future conflict going forward. In our last report, we outlined essentially four scenarios where these communities could potentially face future conflict or be caught in the midst of conflict. We talked about the potential for conflict between militias, where religious groups, even within one religious group, uh, there's a now a small proliferation. And there've been, there have been militias that have existed within these religious communities. This is not a new phenomenon. But there is a, a resurgence and a growth to a certain degree. There's a potential for conflict between those communities. There's the potential for conflict, as we know now, if you've been kind of following the news. Uh, there are PMF forces. Um, which are Iraqi government-affiliated forces that are also now just outside many of these communities as well. There's a potential for conflict between Kurdish Peshmerga, um, Iraqi forces, PMF forces, with religious minority communities potentially caught in between. In areas around Sinjar, there are multiple Kurdish factions that exist, including PKK forces that are there. And there's a potential for conflict. I only paint that to show that we can talk about this situation as being merely a human rights issue. And I'm, of course, a human rights advocate, so I say that with um, you know recognition that for me, the human rights concerns are, are kind of paramount. But we need to be talking about the situation as a security concern. We need to be talking about the protection of these communities as central to not just the national security interests of Iraq and Kurdistan, but also the central interest of the United States and other governments and their national security priorities. We need to be looking at these communities. I hate to instrumentalize them, but essentially as canary in the coal mines. We missed the warning signs, or we chose to overlook the warning signs of attacks that were happening against them over the last decade, over the last few years, that should have set off alarm bells and the potential for mass atrocity crimes and the instability in that entire region. So going forward, we have to be thinking about how to be engaging, how Congress, how this administration, can be putting front and center the needs of these vulnerable communities when there are discussions about who is going to provide physical protection to these communities. Who is going to administer and govern these uh, areas? Where will responsibility lie, in Baghdad or Erbil? We need to be having this conversation when we're talking about reconstruction reconstruction and stabilization. I have. I'm almost, I would say, at the end of my patience at times when it comes to going and talking to folks on the Hill or even um, in the government and having discussions about the stabilization needs and the reconstruction needs. One, I think we've waited far too long. Uh, Much of the territory in areas, at least around Sinjar, was liberated, uh, you know, one, two years ago. We should have been seeing stabilization efforts right there in the midst of the ongoing conflict. Two... When you go and talk to someone about the needs, and I've outlined a lot of the the kind of the concerns on the ground and the level of destruction, the need to rebuild trust, the, the need to allow people to return home, you can't do that on a on a penny, essentially. And I know that people don't want to have that hard conversation, but the government in uh, Erbil and the government in Baghdad are going to need assistance. They're going to need long-term engagement. And I know that's incredibly unpopular. And it's very unpopular to say here um, in Washington with a government that has already expended so much money on trying to invest in in Iraq and stabilizing Iraq. But the reality is, unless we are actually going to be serious about coming up with a strategy, not just for all of Iraq, but a localized strategy for Nineveh, and to rebuild and reconstruct Nineveh, then I think all of our rhetoric around trying to help religious minorities, unfortunately, will ring hollow at the end of the day. And we need to be having that conversation, because the United Nations cannot do it alone. They need to have the support of the United States, of the European Union. They need to have the political weight and leverage that comes with this government weighing in on the plight of these particular communities. And it needs to be framed not just as investing in the future of religious minorities, but as investing in the stability and future of Nineveh and the stability of both Iraq and Kurdistan. I think that, you know, in terms of us having a more authentic and real conversation, we have to be talking about the lack of political, uh, clear political administration for that particular area. We need to be talking about the needs of religious minorities to be able to assert their own political voice, because they are such a small uh, minority in the greater Iraq conversation about its future. We need to be investing for real in stabilization and ensuring that part of that focuses on on also fostering reconciliation and trust between communities, because so much of the trust has been eroded. Minorities have been pawns, and I think that's the most, over the last two years, the most coherent point that I think I can hopefully make. They have had to look to greater powers, be it powers north of them or south of them, for protection. They've had to look outside of their borders. And they are in a state right now of quite, I'd say, real uncertainty in terms of their future. And if we want to preserve their future, and if we want to see them return home, we have to deal with these difficult questions. We also need to have a conversation about should they not be able to return home? How do we ensure that in displacement they are able to kind of thrive and continue? Um, and in, in that regard, you know, I think there are a number of components of a strategy that can be be taken forward. I'm happy in the the questions to to talk about this specific issue of accountability um, because I do think that. And I, I give a lot of credit to Nathaniel Hurd and others on the Hill who are trying to uh, see legislation passed and advance that will deepen the U.S. government's investment in accountability, uh, at least through trying to ensure the documentation of the crimes that have happened. And it's of critical importance that we do that because for many of the individuals that were targeted, it was it was not just foreign fighters. It was not, um, you know, individuals from elsewhere in Iraq and Syria. It was it was people who were also their neighbors that committed these crimes. And for them to be able to <laughs> return home, they need to know that the person who killed their mother, um, or their sister, or their brother, or forced them to flee in only their T-shirt, is going to be held responsible. So I'll start with that. Thank
0: you. Thank you. Excellent. I, I'll come back to a lot of the points that you made. Um, very rich. Um, But I wanted to address a question to Pari, who who has uh, not only spent time in Sinjar, but in the camps, uh, the IDP camps and elsewhere, speaking to Yazidis. What now are their priority issues? And now, three years after uh, the atrocities began in Sinjar, uh, how do they assess the response of local governments, both in Erbil and in Baghdad, um, but also of, uh, of, of Western governments uh, as well to their situation? And, and what are their, are their main priorities going forward?
1: So um, what Yazidis at the moment uh, think about is, of course, justice, security, safety, opportunities, equality. Um, these are just the things in general that we are looking for. Uh, we all know that um, soon, um, uh, Kurdistan will try to go for independence. Um, as the Yazidi community, I think we do uh, support anyone who wants to uh, uh, seek this opportunity. And um, um, I mean, the Kurds worked very hard to achieve this. And But I think for the Yazidis, it is, uh, at this point... Uh, Not whether if it is Kurdistan who will get independence or it is Iraq who will be the ones uh, looking over the minorities. I think it is, um, whether it's Iraq or Kurdistan, what are we going to do for the Yazidi community? I think, uh, as Naomi said uh, very well, for communities to go, uh, for Yazidi communities or other minorities to go back, you have to have a sense of security. Uh, At this moment, no, the Yazidis do not have that. Why? Because. I think Sinjar is now becoming an area of uh, um, political political fights of, say, for example, the YPG, the uh, KRG, the Iraqi government. I mean, there's a lot going on in that area. So even when ISIS is gone, how are we going to deal with that and making sure that the community is safe also when they're returning to their homes? Um, uh, How are the Yazidis uh, going to deal with the Arabs who are still living in the uh, neighborhood? So these are all questions that we should uh, try to answer together with both governments, I think. Um, I think uh, we as the Free Yazidi Foundation do have a very well uh, connection with the government. We have a lot of talks about how to make sure that Yazidis can live and stay in Kurdistan to uh, make sure that not everyone is leaving and we have to eventually talk about an exodus. Um, I think it is happening. Yazidis are leaving and they don't have any trust or faith in living in Iraq. Um, Yazidis are talking about a 74th genocide. I mean, uh, we have now the possibilities to use um, internet and social media and that's why the Yazidi genocide uh, became well known around the world. Otherwise, it would have been one of those other uh, attacks against the Yazidis, which was unknown and not clear what happened. Um, regarding um, uh, the victims, I mean, we're not only talking about Yazidi women. We are also talking about young children. Uh, we heard about Yazidi boys coming back out of uh, ISIS captivity. Of course, these kids have been brainwashed, but they are currently in the um, uh, jail in Kurdistan. Um, I know of, uh, I've heard of uh, around 20 uh, Yazidi kids. I mean, we have to uh, talk with the government on what to do for these kids. They need psychological treatment, which we are offering to, uh, at the moment, young women and girls. And we should think about offering this to uh, young boys who are returning, because they did not willingly go to support ISIS. They were forced into this. Um, I think um, yes, Yazidis uh, can uh, have very good talks with the Kurdish governments, uh, with the Kur- Kurdish government after they are independent. But what do we want? One thing that we definitely want is that Yazidis, Need five seats in the parliament. Until now, minorities, Christians have five seats. Um, Turkmen have five seats. Armenians, which are, I don't know, maybe a hundred or more, they have even one seat. Yazidis are being seen as Kurds. At this point, after the genocide, I think the Kurdish government has to realize that there are people who see them as who see themselves as Yazidis, as ethnic religious minorities uh some Yazidis see themselves as Kurds. The the, the, the Yazidis are divided into groups, but the government has to understand that with this it means that the Yazidis need a voice in the parliament, which means that yes, Yazidis have the right to have five seats in the parliament, which makes also things much better for the Kurdish government on how to deal with minorities. If you don't give them a voice in the government, you will also not understand how to deal with them, and then you will eventually have uh, uh, things that, like uh, people misunderstand the religion um, within the, the communities. There will have uh, there will be uh, misunderstandings, and people will 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 not be um, happy with each other. Right. There's no equality. There's no uh, equal rights, and it is true underground. I have seen it. And these are the points that the government should uh, uh, try to face. Whether it's Iraq, I do not blame the KRG for anything. But it is the KRG or the Iraqi government that has to look into these things for minorities, not only Yazidis, also Christians, Turkmen, and others.
0: Picking up on that, um, it connects to a lot of the things that you had observed, Naomi, about Uh, the vulnerability of these peoples and the lack of any clear political or security administration to protect them. And without that framework, the resolution of any of these uh, issues that Pari describes um, will not be possible. There needs to be a framework for politics to take place, for justice to be meted out and delivered and and obtained. Um, I remember reading recently a 16th century Kurdish writer talked about how When the Turkish Sea and the Tajik Sea agitate and flow out, it's the Kurds and the others in the middle who often have to pay the consequences of that. Um, That situation, as you have described, is very much the case today, uh, not just in Nineveh, but across much of the greater Levant. The actors are different, but these people are very much stuck between competing empire-building projects, if you will, Uh, the caliphate, of course. Um, Iran has attempted to build, or is building, uh, I think quite successfully, um, uh, a security corridor uh, to maintain its positions on the eastern Mediterranean. And that crosses directly through Nineveh. Uh, The PKK has also established a position in uh, Nineveh. um, And that, of course, has alarmed, um, in part, uh, heroically, they came to the defense of the Yazidis to begin with, but they have uh, also stayed. And this has raised a lot of alarms and, and generated a lot of tensions with local um, local communities, as well as with regional governments, uh, including the Turkish one, um, uh, which now sees this as an ongoing national security threat to itself. Um the resolution of all of these and the establishment of any kind of political administration is going to be extremely difficult to do without a security policy to deal with these geopolitical churnings and the great um, uh, the great uh, ambiguity and, and, and flow and flux of these, of these various forces. Have you given any thought to how the United States um, should begin to articulate a policy for dealing with that. Um, We've had some, I think, very forward-looking statements from the new administration about the need uh, for providing security. Um, uh, The Baghdad government in the past had always been looked to as being um, the primary vehicle for providing security for all of the peoples in Iraq. But at that, it has failed. Uh, and I think one question I have is um, where else can the United States begin to to look um, uh, for partners on the ground, um, not just in Nineveh but elsewhere, to begin to reconstitute a viable security order for these peoples.
2: Well, that's definitely a challenging question to to weigh in, yeah, um, but a really critical question because uh, I think that we. We often want to ignore the complexity of the environments in which we work on. And unfortunately, what happens is we tend to uh, not ask difficult questions about what could be the unintended consequences of actions that were taken um, with the best of interests in mind, um, or actions that were taken without asking about what their impact could be on a host of populations, including vulnerable communities. Yeah. And the vulnerable communities in this case, I do believe uh, there are many within Iraq who face incredible insecurity but I do think religious minorities their plight is particularly (laughs) acute and they've also been on the receiving end of the unintended consequences I think far too often so I think for me it would be more a question of a set of of questions that I would pose um, to a certain degree and I will be completely agnostic on the question of kind of a referendum or independence but as Pari said you know there are two governments at this point who are exercising some degree of um, engagement, responsibility. Um, in some cases, not engagement, abdicating responsibility. And I think that there has to be a when we're talking about these particular issues. I think there has to be a robust conversation with both Baghdad and Erbil on the future of these particular communities. I think and again, this is more just looking at it from, um, from the perspective of a practitioner that looks at vulnerable minorities uh, and communities at risk of genocide, we have to be having these hard conversations with those that are de facto exercising control on the ground. When we don't have those conversations, we do not allow, I think, for ourselves to be able to actually provide assistance, political pressure, be voices for the promotion of human rights in as robust a way as we actually can. I think a second concern is unfortunately these minority communities, uh, I have noticed in the course of many of my conversations that I get responses along the lines of, well, you know, it's either twofold. It's one, well, they're a buffer between Sunni and Shia, um, you know, kind of tensions. Well, that's instrumentalizing those communities as well. I and mean, you're not necessarily going to develop a good policy if that's the, the approach that you're taking. Um, the other kind of avenue is, if we focus on them, if we pursue, for example, justice and accountability for these particular communities, well, what's the impact going to be on the broader sunni Sh- shia community? Those questions have to be asked, but they shouldn't be a um, they shouldn't be used as a shield to block advancing progress when it comes to certain policy, be it on accountability or on on physical protection. So I think that. Yeah, my my way around your question would be um, that we need to be defining the sets of questions of what are the priority interests for these particular communities? How do you ensure their physical protection? How do you ensure their ability to um, have economic viability? How do you ensure that they have political representation? How do you ensure that they uh, can practice their their religious identity? I mean, when we talk about it, and again, it requires getting into the nuances of these communities, and Yazidi even, uh, sorry, Pari even alluded to it in terms of the Yazidi community. There's no one voice that is the Yazidi voice. Right. There's no one voice that is the Christian voice. There are communities within each of these larger communities that feel that they are minorities within a minority. Their voices have to be heard as well. The specific senses of insecurity we need to map to be able to understand where there could be potential flashpoints, flashpoints between communities, between communities and if it's the Peshmerga or the Iraqi Security Forces or the PMF that are administering their lands, things that we can potentially help to de-escalate by funding the types of projects that would allow you to to de-escalate it. Uh, But that requires doing more work than I think we're at times willing to do. And when you were talking about additional partners, I mentioned before my frustration about speaking to, to folks, um, and I do hope that this is something that the next administration. I think that there is a an openness to have a conversation, and I've actually been quite um, appreciative and grateful of this current administration's willingness to talk about the importance of religious minorities and see it as part and parcel of what the future of the region in Iraq needs to be. I think that creates a remarkable kind of opening and an opportunity um, in that regard. But I think we have to be making sure that it's a very concerted, ongoing conversation, and one where the US commitment is an enduring commitment. These communities have been abandoned so many times. Uh, The Kurdish community has been abandoned many times. People need to be able to have trust in the international community, in what the US government will do, in what the UN will do, in what European governments will do. And to be quite frank, if I was a Christian from Karakush right now, I would have no trust in pretty much anyone other than my immediate family and my community. And I think that's a very, very understandable human response, given what they have experienced, not just in the last three years, but over more than a decade now. And we need to be making sure then that We don't just pass the buck to someone else. So when I hear people saying, well, don't worry, the UN is going to rebuild Nineveh, that, that in my opinion, is an abdication of responsibility. There's only so much that the UN can do, both in terms of financial resources, relying on donors, and political leverage. They don't have the political weight to have the hard conversations with Baghdad and Erbil about what the future of that area looks like. So that's the, I'd rather that we work with facts as they are on the ground and realities as they are, rather than narratives that are framed around a political conception of what a country, a region um, should look like.
0: So let me, Parry, a question for you. I mean, let's talk a little bit about facts on the ground. You've made real efforts uh, in in Erbil, and Baghdad, and also in uh, Europe uh, to promote, Uh, greater programs, initiatives to bring uh, captured ISIS operators um, to justice, uh, to try them in a court of law for their crimes. Can you tell us about those efforts um, and what the political obstacles to this uh, have been? Because to date, as far as I can tell, there hasn't been a single ISIS fighter who has been tried in a court of law uh, for genocide.
1: Yeah. So um, I think Naomi and I both know a lot about the law, because I just recently graduated from my law degree. Um, But I mean, what we've seen, uh, not only in the US, but also in uh, uh, Europe, um, we are lacking to hold perpetrators accountable for war crimes that they committed in Syria or Iraq. this is, uh, for me as a Yazidi, um, very frustra- frustrating because uh, we, have, uh, we have the laws in place, uh, but we do not, we choose the easy way out, and that is indictment for terrorism. Uh, I think it should bother every person around the world that uh, because we're talking about uh, crimes like genocide, crimes against humanity, rapes and murders, and actually in Holland, I'm a citizen from Holland, and uh, the perpetrators are actually just getting away with uh, the crimes that they've committed because at the moment they cannot uh, prove what the perpetrators have done. And that's why it's so good to have organizations like the Free ZD Foundation, which is together with psychologists and lawyers trying to get uh, testimonies from the women and girls and try to make sure that the testimonies are given to prosecutors, national prosecutors. I mean, we did uh, do the uh, route to the ICC, the International Criminal Court, uh, which led actually to nothing because that is political, even if they want to say they are not. They are waiting for the United Nations to refer the case because then the United Nations will probably uh, have to pay all the costs that that are needed for the preliminary investigation. Um, We did ask for a preliminary investigation, which, until now, did not happen. We only received, um, uh, after a couple of weeks of uh, giving the report to the prosecutor, that they uh, they give a a notification of, yes, we uh, we received your report, and you will hear back from us. Now, we are three years further. And actually, um, um, the International Criminal Court is not doing anything. And they have jurisdiction over the foreign fighters who are uh, nationals of these uh, uh, states who are members of the Rome Statute. So if we're talking about uh, foreign fighters that were, for example, Dutch, they have jurisdiction over them. If they have committed crimes, war crimes, they should act. We're talking about a genocide. We are, we are not talking about just a murder somewhere around the world. Right. A genocide is specifically, uh, we have treaties in place and things like this to act according to these treaties, but we are not willing to do so. And that should be a, a big question uh, around the world, everywhere, and that's what we're trying to do. Talking with governments, and it's always, every time we're hearing... Terrorism is very easy and then we could uh, immediately get them behind bars. Yes, you could get them behind bars, but I think the crimes, war crimes, and just random terrorism crimes are very different. And we have to all realize that. I think Yazidi victims have no justice until uh, uh, the perpetrator is um, indicted for the crime that he or she committed against those Yazidi people. I mean, if we talk about Germany now, Germany uh, accepted a lot of refugees in the country. Two Yazidi girls uh, have been brought to Germany for the treatment. These girls have identified their perpetrator. The perpetrators are now on the run. What does this mean? This means that ISIS perpetrators and Europol already had said this, that around five, more than 5,000 perpetrators have gone to Europe. These girls have seen the perpetrator that was raping them in Syria and in Mosul, in Germany. This is something we should all worry about. I mean, we talked with the FBI about these issues. FBI is very on point on everything. But if I talk about Europe, no. The the war crimes unit is trying to do something. But believe me, when these refugees are coming, they don't have the uh, capacity to scan all these uh, people. They don't have on their shirt that written that they are ISIS members. They are just refugees. But we will get a lot of uh, trouble in Europe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: One more question perhaps for the two of you um, before I open it up to a, a, the larger discussion and Q&A. Um, and it pertains to the ideological component of this struggle to defeat ISIS. Um, that As we all know, there's a long and very difficult road ahead to crushing this movement ideologically. Um, I've traveled in the last 18 months uh, to multiple countries between Morocco and Tunisia to India, uh, speaking with security officials, and most of them will talk, not just in terms of numbers of people who are sympathetic to movements like Islamic State, but also to the sort of popular culture that has emerged among certain segments of the population, certain segments of the population, particularly among young men who see Islamic State as an answer to a sort of um, an impossible manhood that they've been lusting after as young men and and feel denied. And so they see the images of Islamic State in Western Iraq and in Syria firing off their machine guns uh, as glamorous. As attractive, uh, as, as something that, 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 that can satisfy any young man's desire for, for adventure. They're not, they are not aware of the crimes uh, of genocide that Islamic State has perpetrated. In many cases, um, those crimes and news of those crimes has been dismissed as fake news. Um, uh, and so I wanted to ask the two of you going forward and and your understanding, I mean, both as practitioners on the ground, but also Naomi, in the work that you've done looking at um, cases of genocide in the past, and how to build political societies that can actually sustain uh, an effort to prevent genocide in the future. I mean, what other things do we need to do diplomatically, ideologically, among other things, to make it clear, not just to Washingtonians and to Americans and to to sympathetic governments elsewhere, but to our protectorates in the Arab Gulf and to other countries that are still struggling to cope with um, this culture that has emerged in recent years, that that sees the Islamic State as glamorous. What else can be done um, uh, to help people understand what exactly has happened in Nineveh?
1: Going forward? Well, I, one thing is that, um, yes, we do have a, a global right. commitment to defeat ISIS. And almost every government that I spoke, uh, spoke to uh, says we will, um, uh, with airstrikes, kill all of them. But that is, of course, not true. Right. You will always have some perpetrators walking around. And this ideology, you will defeat that by having a court, if you give victims justice, if you give them a day in court, you will also say to the young uh, generation around the world, like, it's not cool to be with ISIS. There is eventually a court that will hold you accountable for what you did. And it's not like what we see now in newspapers, uh, um, some girl from Germany went uh, with uh, with her uh, boyfriend uh, to um, Syria and Iraq, and now she's um, uh, held, I don't remember if it's in Kurdistan or not, uh, or in Iraq. But she, she will probably just go back to her family, but she was an ISIS sniper. I mean... It is If she gets away or any other perpetrator gets away with the crime that he or she committed, then it's still cool to be with ISIS because I don't know if you, you uh, have uh, read these ISIS magazines, uh, I mean uh, the Dabiq. I mean, they try really to brainwash our young generation around the world to say how cool ISIS is. That if you go to the caliphate, you will uh, use a sniper and you'll be like these, um, uh, yeah, it's the, game, the games that the young generation is playing. But we have to change that by getting justice and ending impunity. And I think that's one of the, the main things that uh, needs to be done. It is the governments that have to understand how is ISIS working, how is this ideology, how can we prevent them to attract new young generation.
0: Yeah, Yeah. without justice, we can't possibly yeah. hope that our military successes against this group will produce the strategic outcomes that we all seek. Yeah, I think
2: it's a, uh, I mean, it's a difficult question for, yeah. for foreign fighters. I mean, from... What I've been able to read, I and mean, there is no exact science on what makes the Islamic State appealing. It seems as though each individual has a different reason as to why it resonates with them and what compels them to to decide to, to join. And I think that makes it very challenging to tackle um, both supporters here and abroad and, and those who chose to go as fighters. I'm more interested in the question of how do you build resilience within societies so that they can withstand. The appeal of these types of ideologies right. and are less inclined to turn on their neighbors. And that's again going back to the bigger question of how do you prevent genocide? How do you stabilize Nineveh? How do you kind of build a future um, Iraq? Because those dynamics are actually fairly common across communities and societies that have experienced atrocity crimes. Impunity and a culture of impunity is a massive, massive factor. Um, And that's why when we talk about impunity and trying to tackle accountability, we're trying to make the argument, and I think this is, again, one of the challenging things. You have to constantly be inserting, for those who are going to look at foreign policy through a very narrow national security lens, why accountability matters. Um, There has been media reports recently that the Office for the Global Criminal Justice at the Department of State might might be closing, or it will be subsumed into other parts of the Department of State. Those core functions in that office are actually quite important in terms of um, showing US leadership on advancing justice and accountability efforts for the Islamic State That office was central in trying to push both for the recognition of the the genocide determination and trying to explore avenues today to make sure that there is funding for investigations on the ground, to collect evidence of atrocity crimes, defining avenues where cases could be brought forward, be that working um, with the the Kurdish regional government or the Iraqi central government, neither governments have got um, legislations that actually criminalize genocide, crimes against humanity, or war crimes. Um, Baghdad seems to be blocked. Um, It's quite unclear whether or not it's a lack of political will, whether it is um, dealing with uh, so many different issues that they're grappling with. I would regard it as pretty much an easy step that they could take in keeping with their genocide uh, obligations. The parliament in in Erbil has not been sitting, um, for, I believe, around the last two years which has impaired the ability to move legislation forward there. There are those types of things that one could try to advance, in addition to the counterterrorism charges that that Pari mentioned, making sure that everyone who is arrested and was a fighter is also charged if they were responsible for sexual violence or responsible for murder. But for me, I really think if we want to talk in the long term, and again, this is where it becomes an uncomfortable conversation, because those of us outside of Iraq want to be able to, after the military um, defeat is secured, kind of check off a box and move forward, what we need to actually be doing is trying to invest at the local level to address the underlying grievances that these communities have so that when like, when ISIS attacked Mosul, it was able to take Mosul for many reasons. One was the fracturing of the Iraqi security forces. But there were other dynamics at play. The local community had had it with being um, targeted by Shia militias and security forces that were preying on the people of Mosul, essentially. There was, I mean, there's so many different dynamics that we can unpack. And I think that we need to be really addressing those underlying issues through long-term um, engagement. And I recognize that's unpopular. But unless we have that type of commitment, we will be back having these conversations You know, 10 years from now. The US will be sending um, special forces and considering whether or not to send troops again. Um, so. That would be, I'm much more interested in the the question about why neighbors turn on neighbors or why local communities create pathways for these types of crimes to move forward. And the solution to that involves um, engagement on everything from political representation and governance to economic viability to fostering reconciliation and promoting human rights there needs to be a resort to law and not to essentially the gun at the end of the day and that's not unique to iraq that's fairly common when we look at genocide um, situations that have experienced genocide or countries
1: i think one one last thing is also about education uh, the people who live in the area i mean if we talk about iraq if we talk about uh, kurdistan the people there are so many minorities the people should learn about other ones' religion. They should learn about who is living in the country. They there should be consequences for people who are treating other people wrong. Right. I think that is one issue that um, uh, makes uh, neighbors attacking neighbors. I mean, if 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 we keep on calling Yazidis devil worshippers, if we keep on calling Yazidis non-believers, even like the Kurdish community. Uh, I mean, I live in Holland. People have said to friends of mine, are you really with uh, uh, talking with Pari, you know, that she's a, a devil worshipper? I mean, how does that feel for me? Yeah. There are good Kurdish people who are my friends and best friends, since I know them from a very young age. But there are some people in, our com- uh, in the Kurdish community that are very... Um, um, I, I think they don't understand our religion, and I think that their parents have not been taught about minorities. And there should be, from the government, an action to change that for the future children. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Let us let's, – let's open this up to a bigger conversation. I know that we have a lot of insight and perspective in this room. Sir, uh, if um, – if you can please keep your comments and questions as brief as possible, because we are running out of time. And also, please identify your name and affiliation for the record. I'm Peter Humphrey. I am an intelligence analyst and a former diplomat. The tax that you mentioned is the jizra. And it is not a 2% zakat. It is up to half of what you own. And so at some point, I wonder when we address the elephant in the room, which is uh, you know, politically incorrect that uh, there are hundreds of thousands, even millions, of Muslims who believe it's okay to expand your faith by violence and conquest. And nobody, nobody has a plan to make that disappear. Thank you. That's an interesting point and an important one. Uh, part of what we are talking about is that advancing uh, rule of law, uh, not just in terms of programs, but actual institutions and uh, looking and and bringing ISIS fighters to court where they need to respond to crimes levied against them um, as individuals, not as members of some mass movement, is a very important component that is completely lacking so far uh, in our arsenal to deal with groups like ISIS. Um, But it is a very long and complicated process, you're absolutely right, specifically dealing with these broad-based ideological movements. Yeah, sir. Uh, In the front row here.
3: Uh, My name is Fazl, I am a uh, former UN staff member, UN member. Uh, currently, I am running an uh, organization called Kurdistan Aid, KAID. Um, I have seen a uh, couple questions here and there back and forth to Naomi about the U.S. strategy. Um, don't you think that U.S. is lost as a uh, former implementer of uh, uh, USAID and State Department projects in Ninoa province? Uh, don't you think that we need a partner, or oh, we, we call it stakeholders? Don't you think the U.S. is lost to find a stakeholder, a partner to implement or democratizing the area? We all know that defeating ISIS militarily is very easy. But the, 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 the psychology or the, 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 the idea behind ISIS needs years and years to, to go away by democratizing the area. Don't you think the U.S. is lost to find a partner, stakeholder? Do you think the U.S. can trust Turkey, can trust Syria, can trust Iraq, can trust KRG, Iran or elsewhere? Thank you. Naomi. Um, maybe I'll touch on just kind of
2: one aspect part of, that of that conversation. I think there are our partners that exist. I think there are local organizations. I think there's others that, that can and and should be partners and are being partners. Um, I have a lot of uh, respect for the projects that the US Institute for Peace has been doing and try to rebuild um, trust amongst communities. And I think they've found a way to work with local communities and give them autonomy, which I think is, is very important in trying to help show, again, what rule of law and governance looks like, Invest in local civil society because civil society is an incredible um, enabler at times um, for trying to encourage governments to do better and and do more. And I do think that those partners do exist. Uh, I would just take one step back, though, and highlight a couple of the challenges, too. You know, when the U.S. government under the last administration chose to uh, draw down its presence in Iraq, one of the areas that it it most dramatically um, cut was the USAID projects. USAID projects in Nineveh, projects that were working with religious minorities. So when we talk again about the need to think about unintended consequences, we also need to heed the lessons of the past. And one of the greatest tools that this administration and future administrations have at its disposal to try to build governments and countries that are resilient to genocide is by working with development practitioners on, as you said, the long, slow effort to try to create environments where um, the likelihood of, a, of genocide is, is less likely. And that goes, again, to the really difficult conversations that need to be had on the Hill and with this administration about not just military support or not just kind of political um, engagement, but on how to rebuild, stabilize, and reconstruct. And again, that's where you can't do it on a penny. You have to be willing to actually um, put the resources there. And. And it's not a popular conversation, but it's unfortunate, I think, one that that needs to be had. We can do it in a smarter and more effective way, especially through working with local partners on the ground. Um, But we have to be open to that conversation in the first place. And I I really hope that we do not do as the the last administration did, and um, cut or curtail the the work that really smart um, US government officials have done elsewhere, have done in Iraq, and can do in the future. We need to right now be focusing on how to get as much of an intellectual um, investment and financial investment into thinking about smart strategies for, for Nineveh going forward. Yeah. There are a limit.
3: of political will in the area I don't see the
0: It's a very good question, and it's a very good point. USIP has done tremendous work along with a number of other organizations. And there's a diversity of, obviously, partners on the ground in Nineveh and elsewhere that you can work with. But at the end of the day, the problem still becomes who is going to provide the governing political and security framework with which rights can actually be safeguarded, uh, with which security can actually be provided. On the question of Erbil and Baghdad, as an American citizen, I don't have to be agnostic, and I'm not. I've been persuaded of uh, the United States um, taking a strategic as well as a political interest in seeing Kurdish self-rule and eventually independence uh, materialize. As a policy analyst, I think that it would be a lot easier to make that kind of argument here in Washington Um, uh, if in KRG uh, there was leadership and more discussion between Erbil and here in the United States about what are the real material capabilities that are required both in terms of military protection and justice to provide a a, a wall around the peoples of Nineveh. Um, Obviously, that needs to go hand in hand with um, very careful diplomacy on the ground with the peoples of Nineveh. There will need to be uh, great capacity to provide um, um, self-security for the Christians and Yazidis in that area. But I think that From a US strategic perspective, working with Erbil is a safer bet than working with Baghdad. Um, Sir, in the back there, please. Yes, I'm Russell King. with a question for Ms. Ibrahim. Um, from what I hear about Yazidis as, as a religion, it sounds a little bit like maybe Native American religions. I'm not sure. I don't think it's either Christianity or Muslim, but if it is, let me know. But I know the Native Americans often have an origin story um, of, of how their particular um, tribe and you know, religion came, came to be. Can you give us a history of the Yazidis and their relationships with other histories from the beginning? That truly is a fascinating question, and, and a complicated one.
1: The answer is very long, yeah, but I yeah. can give you my card and you can go on our website. Yeah. It has like everything on it.
0: It's, it's absolutely fascinating, and it's, it behooves us to read up uh, and to understand um, this history, uh, and, and not just of the Yazidis, but of the other peoples of Nineveh and elsewhere. Uh, Rep- Representative Rahman, in the front row.
4: Uh, Thank you very much. I'm Bayan Sami Abdurrahman, the Kurdistan Regional Government Representative. I want to personally thank Peri and Naomi. You've both been very brave, very courageous, uh, done a great deal, and uh, makes me very proud and humble that I'm here with you today. I want to just touch on a few points. I agree with everything you said, by the way, which is rare. Usually I disagree with a lot of what the panelists say. But I just want to pick up on a few points. Uh, Of course, the Nineveh-Shingal area, and I'm from Shingal, are disputed territories. There is an article in the Iraqi constitution, Article 140, which should have been implemented by 2007 or the end of 2007, would have given the people of those areas the opportunity to vote in a free, open, democratic way on where do they want to be. Do they want to be part of Kurdistan or part of the rest of Iraq? That article was never implemented. The U.S. administration, the U.N., the international community, Baghdad, all of them, colluded to make sure that article 140 was not implemented and what i hear you discuss today enrages me because article 140 was negotiated it was part of a uh, part of a uh, constitution that was ratified and voted on by millions why was it not implemented now we have another opportunity kurdistan will have a referendum on independence we haven't talked about a referendum for the disputed territories We still want the disputed territories to be decided, either through negotiation with Baghdad or let's revisit Article 140. But I would urge the communities that are in those disputed areas, push for Article 140 to, to, to be implemented because your voice will be heard. You can vote against joining Kurdistan. But let your voice be heard and let it be done in such a way that the international community can no longer ignore this article or ignore the result. A couple of other small but actually very important points. The issue of education. We recognize in the Kurdistan region that our schools teach only Islamic studies. And there is a plan that from very soon, I, I don't want to put a date on it, but very soon... Islamic studies will be changed to religious studies, so that our children will learn about every religion in the world, just as I, who was educated in Britain, I learnt about Buddhism, Hinduism, Yazidism, believe it or not. Because that is a beginning. Well, we recognise, we recognise that the, the children, the future of Kurdistan relies on our children having a more open mind than our generation and previous generations. Finally, the issue of justice and accountability. The Kurdistan region was the first government anywhere in the world to say that this was genocide. We have established a center in the with the help of an NGO to collect testimony. We hope in such a way that it can be used eventually in prosecution. But nobody wants to prosecute. We also have been to the ICC. We have also been to the United Nations. The United States needs to put pressure, use its leverage on Iraq. Iraq is the sovereign state here. I wish Kurdistan was a sovereign state. Iraq is the member of the UN. Iraq is the one that can invite the ICC to have jurisdiction. Put pressure on Iraq to do so, to do the right thing. Put pressure on Washington to use its leverage on Iraq to do the right thing. Thank you very much.
1: I I think very good that... uh, last thing you said about justice. We are now currently talking with uh, uh, some people from the Kurdish government regarding justice in Kurdistan. And hopefully soon, we might have uh, cases and uh, maybe the first case in Kurdistan.
0: This in the second row here.
2: Hello. Hi, I'm Laura Kelly. I'm from The Washington Times. Um, Pari can you speak? First of all, thank you very much for being here and speaking to this. Um, can you speak to some of the feelings about the of the victims in their will to see the perpetrators brought to justice? Um, I mean, is it kind of something that they are, are just so broken that they don't have the energy to, to say, I want to see them in court, or do they show a real desire to see them go through the justice system? Um, and then, Naomi, if you can, Are we able to draw any parallels between um, bringing ISIS members to international criminal courts uh, compared to how we brought the Nazis to justice? Thank you.
1: So um, I think I will start and answer this question. Um, Do victims want to have their day in court? Yes. Um, The only thing is that you have to understand that there are a lot of different organizations And what we're seeing that also media is doing a lot of exploitation of victims. There are a lot of victims that don't want to follow that route. And I can understand that, which they shouldn't do that. It's dangerous for their own safety. It's not good for their own health. And psychologically, uh, it's just very bad. But we as a Free Yazidi Foundation really try to uh, find a way to make sure that the victims are protected, that there is security for them, that there is psychological treatment for if they retell their story. And with that in mind, I mean, I can if I show you my phone, it has like tons of messages of these victims who just see me as their sister because I don't want anything from them. I don't want the publicity. I don't want the 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 news every time uh, uh, to come and bring these victims and to retell their stories it's very bad it's not good for their health and that should be understood by everyone so do they want their day in court yes they want their day in court but with an organization that is trying to protect their safety their health their well-being for the free city foundation this is our main goal their well-being is so important for us for me I'm a Yazidi woman leading a Yazidi organization. Believe me, in the Middle East, you are put aside because you're a woman. They don't, they don't care. But I know that there is a lot of pressure of uncles, of the men in the families, of fathers who are still there, putting a lot of pressure on these girls to talk on television, to talk and do interviews. I had the other day a message to Rukmini Rick Mo- from the New York Times about her podcast. This girl is just out of captivity, and immediately, bam. What what was the reason? Her uncle agreed on doing an interview. It's not good. I know from the Yazidi community, from the women in our community, that they don't want to be pressured, that there is a lot of pressure from the men of our community to make these women retell their story and ask any psychologist. I have a psychologist on my board. Ask any of them, is it good for a trauma victim to retell her story every time? No, it's very bad, and the media should understand that, Governments should understand that. United Nations should understand that this is very bad. We wanna tell our story, we want the community to tell their story, but in a very good way. The day in court, it will happen. Not today, not tomorrow, but one day it will happen, and we hope that we, as the Free Yazidi Foundation, can be part of that. Not for the uh, uh, sensation, but to make sure that the victim is well protected.
2: Um, Thank you for that, Pari. I think uh, it also just underscores what Pari has said, just the the perverse nature of of the issues that we're dealing with, the fact that communities themselves have to be out there advocating for themselves to get any semblance of justice. I do want to underscore the one point that was made. Um, Many people have been working towards trying to get something very basic when it comes to justice, and that is an international independent investigation. What many of us who've been working on these issues would like to do is ensure that, through the UN Security Council, an independent investigation is authorized. It is going to be done in a way in which it assists the government in Iraq in fulfilling its obligations, provides them with capacity uh, so that there can be domestic ownership. What it allows us to do is, essentially, three years after these crimes, Get people on the ground who are trained. There's been a lot of actors um, from various, various different kind of backgrounds. There's a KRG genocide committee. There are independent NGOs that are doing this work to try to gather the evidence. A very big concern we have is that it's not being collected in accordance with international standards, which means you can't use it for prosecutions. And I know that sounds like it's a, a little kind of um, procedural issue, but it's actually quite significant, especially when thousands of people have been sharing their accounts. Yeah. I want to see an investigation too, because it should be not just for crimes perpetrated against Yazidi, but it should be crimes for all of the religious minority communities that were happened, that has that has taken place. And there hasn't been enough time spent trying to document the atrocities that were perpetrated against Christians, Turkmen, uh, different Shia sects, communities that also have got experiences. And we need to make sure that there's accountability for those crimes. the The general sense is that this resolution could pass through the Security Council, but it rests on the consent of Baghdad. Political will seems to be lacking to actually sign the documents to allow for this investigation to to begin, to allow the Security Council to move forward. And I think it's important to, to just acknowledge that there are responsibilities that are held by the government in Baghdad to ensure accountability for the crimes that took place. And this is one step that has been carefully crafted in a way to empower the government and to be a partner with the government to do that. We have seen political will exercised when Parliament wants to exercise it. Uh, Last week, uh, maybe a week and a half ago, there was a a bill that passed um, that recognized genocide against Turkmen through the Iraqi Parliament. We have seen uh, Prime Minister Abadi be able to, to make decisions on issues that go beyond the military defeat of ISIS. So this is one area where I think that um, all leverage should be used and engagement to explain why this is important, not just for these communities, but for the future stability of the country. On the question about um, Nazis and the ICC, it's a very different situation because, of course, um, you know, depending on where you, you sit, the, the reality was uh, that the, the victors were the ones who brought justice and who did the, the Nuremberg trials. So in that particular case, you had um, real leadership by the Allied forces to bring the senior commanders um, to, to justice before Nuremberg. Uh, that's a very different situation than what we have today right now in Iraq. And I also would just caveat that there's a lot of discussion about the ICC. And of course, the International Criminal Court is is a very important. And if you talk to Iraqis, they're the first to tell you also that they were going to sign the Rome Statute in 2004, 2005. They didn't because of US pressure. I was not part of those conversations. There's a lot of media coverage of that. If that is in case true, we are dealing with an unintended consequence of that policy today, because we would have potentially been able to see cases brought there. Um, and perhaps there would have been a greater semblance and foundation on which a rule of law could have been built in the country. Um, But I think we need to be looking much more. At the ICC, you can only ever hold the most senior commanders, and that will be very, or leaders. It'll be very hard in this particular case because of the propensity to either kill themselves, get killed in the course of, of battle, uh, I think what is much more important is to have the mid-level and low-level individuals held responsible. And that's where the international community needs to work with both Baghdad and Urbill to help make that possible. And the reason I think that's so important is because that goes to actually building the conditions on the ground, ensuring that people know that there is accountability for those who have committed crimes. And I think that that's the type of change that we need to be investing in. Um, you know, I've worked in Rwanda and elsewhere where there There has been various levels of accountability that has been enacted using different mechanisms for doing that. And in Iraq, we need to be talking about what can happen at the different strata for the different type of perpetrators to allow for justice to actually have more meaning for communities on the ground. So I would just encourage people, it's so easy to talk about the ICC. It's important. We need to be talking about it. Uh, but there is a whole array of justice and accountability tools that exist that are far less political, far easier to engage, um, and that are at our disposal that we're not using today.
0: This has been an excellent conversation. Um, I want to be mindful of people's time, uh, and we've run out of it. Um, uh, so if anybody has any additional questions, um, feel free to come up, and, and we'll, I'm sure our panelists, if they have the time, will do their best to try to address them. Um, I wanted to just mention that the Free Yazidi Foundation Uh, in conjunction with some partners, is holding a candlelight uh, vigil tonight at 8 p.m. They're convening at Lafayette Square near the White House. Um, uh, And the public is uh, welcome. Uh, And I also wanted to thank our our speakers. Uh, They did a terrific job, really excellent, very rich discussion. And thank you, all of you, for coming. Um, This should not be a subject that withers away. Uh, so we need to sustain I say one thing? it. Yes.
2: I just want to just quickly underscore something that Pari said at the beginning too and you did too. This is a genocide that's still ongoing. Yes. Yeah. So I think it's really important just to recognize that there are still women and children that are being held by the Islamic State yeah. and as we are carrying out military operations in Raqqa and elsewhere many of those individuals are likely there and are still vulnerable. Yeah. So it's important just to to keep that in mind today. today's. Yeah, so... This day.
1: If if today is exactly three years since the genocide, and it's still ongoing, as she says, so anyone who wants to come tonight at the vigil, please, you are welcome to light a candle for those who uh, died that day and those who are still in captivity. Thank you. Thank you.